postcard from Dulcie to Stephanie, dated 4th of November, 1978. Dear Stephan family, Thought I'd write you a card from Paris, where I am, at the above organization for a week. We'll be back in London at the weekend. Do write soon, especially about that matter that I raised with you. It's very urgent. I hope that you're all keeping fine. I've been very busy and really need a holiday. Love, Dulcie. My name is Neo Rakajani, and you are listening to episode 5 of They Killed Dulcie, a podcast series by Sound Africa and Open Secrets. Just as a reminder, you'll need to listen to the first four episodes of this series in order to understand this one. In this episode, we're going to a protest in front of the South African Embassy in Paris a few weeks before Dulcie September's assassination. Because, as it turns out, the embassy is a key point in understanding what happened to Dulcie. But we begin in Cape Town, where it has been almost five years since Dulcie was released from prison. This episode is called The Arms Money Machine. Here is Nina Callahan. On the 19th of December, 1973, the Edinburgh Castle, a cruise liner bound for England, left Table Bay. Dulcie September was on board, and if she was on the deck, she couldn't have missed Table Mountain. Its grey mass had been a fixture on her horizon as she was growing up, and she had hiked it many times with her friends. In its shadow, the city was increasingly being divided, as racial segregation changed the landscape so radically that the fracture lines still remain. On the other side of the ship was Robben Island. After some years as a whaling station and a leper colony, it had resumed its role as prison for enemies of the state. People like Dulcie. She had been released from jail almost five years ago, but she had been under a banning order ever since. This is Michael Aronser, Dulcie's nephew. The problem with the banning order was that she couldn't do two things. She couldn't teach, which she was trained to do, which was her profession, and she couldn't be politically active. So as her banning order was drawing to a close, she decided to leave South Africa, which she did on a permanent exit visa on December the 19th, 1973. The permanent exit visa, Michael mentions, was also known as the exit permit. It was really just one more way to get rid of people who the state found difficult. The permit was given to travellers who were refused a passport. Travellers the state did not want to come back. If they did anyway, they could be charged with unlawfully leaving the country and be imprisoned. Dulcie was 38 years old when Table Bay faded behind her. She would never return. Well, it was, it was very bewildering. I think that's the only word I can think of now. 
to explain, you know, what it feels like to be wrenched away from your family. This is Ilva McKay Langa, explaining what it was like to uproot your life and go into exile. She now lives in Port Elizabeth, where we meet her in the ANC office. It's election season, and Ilva remains a member of the ANC. I'm actually meant to be retired, (laughs) but I'm sure you know that in struggle, there really is no such thing as retirement. And as you can imagine, we are now, you know, knee-deep in the election 2019 campaign. Like Dalcy, Ilva left South Africa on an exit permit to London. Also like Dulcie, she left at the height of the South African summer. I came there at the end of the year and it was winter. So coming from South Africa, you know, with your sandals and strapless and all of that <laughs> into, into the British winter. When Dulcie arrived in the depth of her own British winter a few years before Ilva, she had to restart her life. She went back to school to qualify as a teacher in England and got involved in anti-apartheid activities in the UK. We don't know if anyone was there to greet her when the ship arrived. But judging from the way Dulcie helped Ilva a few years later, she knew how lonely it is leaving everything behind. I think Dulcie was, was my mentor. You know, we were the younger people who had come out. I was about 25 years old at that time. And I was introduced to to Dulcie. And Dulcie was more than just, she wasn't a political comrade. She was more like a mother to me. That's, that's... (laughs) You know, I can... I don't, you know, I don't often talk about Tulsi because she really was like a mother to me. When Dulcie took it upon herself to provide support to younger comrades like Ilva, she gave them something she never seems to have asked for. Because while everyone who met Dulcie in exile remembers her as supportive, we haven't yet met anyone who remembers Dulcie asking for support for herself. I must say that I learn more about Dulcie now from reading than what I knew actually from her, out of her mouth. Do you know uh, of her personal relationships? Was she involved? Was she... Because I've never come across that whilst talking to people. Mm, No, no, no. I've also never come. And I'm just saying I've spent years with Dulcie but I've never been aware of any, yeah, anything. I don't know anyone who, who she was involved with. So I'm just saying, if that was also underground, maybe it was also underground, I don't know. As Ilva points out, this was in part because of how the comrades knew each other. Even abroad, being an activist meant that you had to be careful with whom and how much you shared of your own experience. But even so, all the people we have interviewed about Dulcie remark how private and professional she always was. One of them is Janet Love, who knew Dulcie through volunteering at the International Defence and Aid Fund. 
It was an organization that, amongst other things, provided support for the legal defense of activists in South Africa. Janet is now vice chairperson at the Independent Electoral Commission, and we meet her in a vibrant hotel in the center of Rosebank in Johannesburg, where a line of immaculately dressed waiters are brewing cappuccinos. She, she was somebody who really didn't talk a lot about herself. The fact that she was somebody who had spent time in, in prison and, and who had put herself on the line was something that in really very, very small glimpses came through. What she preferred to be talking about were issues very much of the current situation and the work. She was relentless if there was something, you know, that, that she felt was wrong or that she felt needed to have further work done. There was something, you know, driven about her. From her childhood experience through prison and exile, Dulcie doesn't appear to have fundamentally changed. She was still drawn to action focused and inclined to tackle challenges head-on. And she also hadn't left behind the young woman who liked Elvis Presley and Chuck Berry. The thing about Dulcie is that Dulcie was a fun person. Wow, Dulcie liked fun. Dulcie liked music. Dulcie liked to dance. She liked to party. She was that kind of person, you know. She was very outgoing. She liked to tell jokes. She liked to laugh, having a good time. Maybe it was the music and the community that drew her to the pubs where fellow exiled South Africans were socializing. Or maybe she was being strategic. In any case, Dulcie, who had never been a member of the ANC, was noticed in London. This is Aziz Pahad, who Dulcie would eventually report to in the party. In London, clubs are the uh, thing for the rich. And pubs are the thing for the middle classes and, in our case, for South African exiles. And she joined us. And in meeting her, I felt that she would be an excellent comrade to help us in the London ANC. We don't know why Dulcie joined the ANC. Judging from the decisive moments in her life, it might have been a decision she made to get closer to the action. Never one to get caught up in ideological debates. She might have reasoned that the ANC would give her the best opportunity to face the enemy. From Dulcie's first days in the ANC in London, we are going to the last weeks of her career and her life in Paris. Rasmus Bids is in front of the South African Embassy Fall has struck Paris as I walk along the River Seine towards the South African Embassy. The wind is so cold that the newly married couples getting their pictures taken in front of the Eiffel Tower are struggling to look happy. Maybe the weather also affects my mood as I get to the Embassy. This uh, building uh, from where I'm standing across the street looks very, very inhospitable. It, it's been described as a beehive before, but to me it almost looks more like riot cops with their big shields stacked on top of each other on a concrete base. 
The reason I'm at the South African Embassy in Paris isn't to admire its architecture. I've come here because we've realized that the building, or rather what was inside of the building, has a lot more to do with Dorsey September than we used to think. Because inside the embassy was the engine room of what researchers at Open Secrets calls the arms money machine. We'll get to that soon. Before then, we'll stay at the same place, but go back in time to 1988, a few weeks before Dorsey was murdered. This is Jacqueline Durand's Dorsey's friend and colleague. You know, Dorsey was very, very uh, shocked by the, the story of the Sharpeville 6. The Sharpeville 6, Jacqueline mentions, were imprisoned in South Africa. They stood accused of having killed the deputy mayor in Sharpeville during a protest. It was a big case that attracted international attention. Dulce was really shocked because they didn't do it. Well, we're sure they didn't do it. And on top of it, uh, probably they'll be sentenced to death. And for the first time, a woman will be hanged. In the end, the accused weren't hanged, but instead given life sentences and later amnesty at the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But Jacqueline and Dulce didn't know that when they prepared a protest in solidarity with the Sharpeville Six in 1988. It was planned on the 17th of March and March in Paris could be dreadful because you never know if it will be a spring weather or a terrible wintry weather, you know, with sleet, snow or whatever. As we know now, the French were playing both sides when it came to South Africa. This complicated matters for Dulce. Dulce was told by the French uh, Minister de l'Intérieur that she didn't have to join that demonstration, that it was not her place. Dulce had to be diplomatic, so she stayed away from the protest and left it to her comrades. Amongst them were her assistant Joyce and Jacqueline. But she didn't want to stay silent either, so she wrote a speech that was meant to be read out loud at the protest. The day of the demonstration happened, it was terrible weather, you know, sleet, cold, terrible. And uh, Joyce arrived, she showed me the document, I read it, and I, oh my God, but it's much too long. People won't stand there in the cold to listen to that. It will take ages. And people will simply go away, you know. We won't have the demo as we want. And I said to Joyce, you know, I said, Joyce, is too long. And Joyce said, well, do as you please. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and I said, no, I mean, we can't tell them all the terrible treatment of the Sharpeville Six, you see, I mean, no, no, no. So just, just scratch, 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 make it shorter. And it worked because, of, and we had the main things, you see, to say, tell your friend, your government to stop selling arms, you see, and all that sort of thing. And of course, I was sure that I will have a ring from Dulce, because of course Joyce will be will tell her about demonstration. In spite of the weather, the protest was a success. But going home, Jacqueline was still a bit uneasy. She was expecting a call from Dulce about the speech that she had shortened. And the call came, but we'll get to that later. Before that, 
the time has come to look closer at the embassy. The building has 10 stories, um, but you can't actually see that. You can only see seven of them because three of them are on the ground. Okay, I'm just gonna take a break now while this goes past. And this is where things get complicated. So I'm actually going to enlist some help. Uh, my name is Michael Marchant. I was the lead researcher on Apartheid Guns and Money, the publication. Spent a lot of time in the archives um, and have been working closely with Sound Africa on the research for the podcast series. Initially, what Open Secrets were looking at was how the apartheid government was managing to buy weapons, even though there was a mandatory UN embargo against this. So everyone we spoke to about the way in which arms were procured, um, so many people kept coming back uh, to the embassy in Paris. And as we worked through the archives, we kept seeing references to arms corps officials being vetted uh, and identified to go to, into that embassy for the sole purpose of, of buying weapons. As it turned out, there was an entire floor in the embassy where arms corps staff were secretly coordinating the majority of arms dealing with companies in Europe. And if we think about the number of arms companies in, in Western Europe, countries like Germany, France, Italy, that were providing weapons um, to the apartheid state, you begin to get a, an idea of what a big job that was. This was the operation Dorsey was looking into. And if you aren't yet convinced that that's enough motive for somebody to want to remove her, Michael will tell you how much money was at stake. 500 billion rand uh, between 1974 and 1994. And in that period, a huge number of, or a huge proportion of those weapons were being sourced by arms corps officials based in, in the Paris embassy. Let me repeat that. 500 billion rand over 20 years. That's so much money that it's almost impossible to understand. For that money, you could build close to a thousand Eiffel Towers. You could pay for three million RDP houses or provide medication for all the HIV-infected South Africans for close to 70 years at current rates. A large amount of that business was coordinated from the embassy in Paris. And by trying to expose this, it seems like Dorsey was becoming a threat to the operation. For the South African government, their fighting capability was at stake. For the arms manufacturers and middlemen, huge profits were at stake. And France risked losing both profits and credibility if their involvement was exposed. In short, there were many who would benefit from the silencing of Dulce's September. And in the spring of 1988, someone was planning her murder. Jacqueline Durance didn't know that when she shortened Dulce's speech or when she waited for the phone call that came just a few days later. Dulcie was furious. Well, how dare you show, shorten the speech? And I said, but I explained, but Dulcie, it was too long. And But you know, it's ANC speech. Who do you think you are to, to shorten an ANC speech? And I said, oh, Dulcie, don't be stupid. You know, it was not possible and she bangs the phones you see and they say okay let's uh, the storm go away <laughs> you know i knew her 
Jacqueline waited for the storm to pass in her summer house in Brittany, expecting to make up with Dulcie when she returned. But unfortunately, she was killed on the Thursday. You know, she phoned me on a Friday, and next Thursday she was killed. You know, so in fact, the last uh, memory of her voice was when she said, but ah, how dare you shorten the NC speech? <laughs> you see, and uh, that was, it just sounds, you see, in my ears, you see, obviously it was yesterday, really. Of course, motive isn't the same as proof. We can only say that there were many who benefited from Dulcie being silenced. For example, the South African and French governments. But in this story of grand corruption, the governments are only parts of the equation. Besides the arms companies, there are other elements necessary to keep an operation like this going. Elements that also had an interest in the silencing of Dulcie's September. To understand why, we need to look at not only how the arms dealers in the Paris embassy found and ordered weapons, but also how they paid for them. And it was a lot more complicated than duffel bags full of dollars. This is researcher Michael Marchand giving an example of how arms corps staff in Paris would go about paying for tanks they had bought, for example, in Germany. You've got the anti-apartheid movement people like Delcy and others who are monitoring these types of trades, or at least trying to. And so Arms Corps can't then just go back to Pretoria and say, could you just clear a transaction to Rheinmetall, the arms company in Germany? That's too easy to follow. And so the second role of that Arms Corps official is then to go to the banks and say, look, we need to obscure this trade. So instead of having Arms Corps buy these tanks, uh, why don't we have XYZ trading in Panama by the tanks? XYZ trading doesn't really exist. You know, it's a letterbox somewhere in Panama or Liberia, and they surely don't have a need for tanks. But that's the first layer of obfuscation. And then the second thing is to say, let's still not make it easy. Let's not send money from Pretoria to the Panamanian company and then to Germany. Let's add a layer of difficulty and that's really where the banks become essential is that not only do they help with setting up the company they then say look make the payment out of Pretoria we will then send the money through you know 30 numbered bank accounts we'll just bounce it around um, send money through what arms corps officials like to call the dark zone and then the arms corps official as the final instruction says when the money is reassembled here pay the German arms company. And at that point, the trail of money and the trail of weapons is so broken that anyone trying to follow that, they would never be able to see it. While there were several banks involved, it quickly became clear that especially one bank, a Belgian bank named Kreditbank, and its subsidiary in Luxembourg, KB Lux, were essential in keeping the arms money machine running. Open Secrets eventually got access to a range of affidavit evidence by arms corps officials that actually worked in that embassy. And up until that point, we had had hints uh, about the use of Credit Bank, but we couldn't see into the entire system. Um, and obviously that is by design. These, uh, these mechanisms were so secret. But when we got that affidavit evidence from the arms corps officials, we started to see that the Credit Bank Luxembourg banking system 
was used to facilitate up to 70% of sanctions-busting violations between 1977 and 1994. 70% of that budget is a lot of money. An anonymous Arms Corps official estimated the amount of money that ran through the accounts at Kreditbank and KB Locks to be as much as $15 million every week for two decades. And the affidavits that Michael mentioned also show that the banks were not just pushing paper for anonymous clients, they actively helped. Essentially how it worked was that senior Arms Corps officials from Paris would fly into Luxembourg meet with senior bankers, and they would come up with this together, a plan to violate the embargo and keep it as secret as possible. What we think is so important here is that the banks appear to have been actively complicit in the system. Altogether, documents show that Arms Corps had about 850 bank accounts across the world designed to hide the trail of money. You don't go from A to B, you go from A to D to F to G and then to B. I mean, just to make it difficult, the people wouldn't follow anymore. This is Ludwig Verdoin, whom I met in Brussels to find out why specifically Kreditbank and KB Locks were so heavily involved in illegal arms dealing. And I've been specializing in uh, investigative journalism, financial journalism. The fact that you're here is because uh, I've written a book on KB Lux, which is the Luxembourg uh, daughter of the Belgian or Flemish uh, Kreditbank. What the two banks were doing can be described as incredibly large-scale money laundering. And of course, there was a lot of money to be made in this way. But it seems like the connection isn't only financial because the chairman of Kreditbank, a man named Andre Vlerik, was connected to the highest levels of the South African government. And he appears to have been a key figure in the scheme. KB Lux existed as an offshore financing center. Vlerik was one of the key people in KB Lux, also in Kreditbank. He had some very high contacts in the South African government. So they said, why not use it for the South African uh, government? I mean, they are looking for something like it. We can trust those people because... They are on the same side as us. Maybe they have the same the same ideas. They they think that we are doing a good a good job. This alliance between the apartheid government, Andre Vlerik, and his associates in the wealthy elite of the Flemish region of Belgium was about much more than only money. What exactly and what that has to do with Dolce, we'll look at in the next episode. But we are going to end this episode somewhere else. Because with the entrance of the bankers into the arms money machine conspiracy, there's yet another powerful group that benefited from getting rid of Dorsey September. But as it turns out, the closest thing we have ever gotten to a confession of a murder did not actually come about in Europe. This is researcher Henny van Furen. So it was a, I think it was a, it was a summery afternoon in the in the high felt, and um, I had met a, a source who we'd been speaking with some time, a very senior member of the apartheid military intelligence, who had agreed to speak, but also um, on this information had asked that it be strictly um, without their name being mentioned, and in a very lengthy conversation. I then started to ask about the murder of Dulce September. And I put forward a hypothesis, which we'd been working on, and the hypothesis was this was a French um, intelligence operation alone, the murder of, of Dulce September in Paris. And the source, he put his, his head in, in his hands and he listened 
very intently to what I was saying. And I wasn't sure how he would respond. I thought there might be some irritation or frustration or what had happened in the past where people simply say they don't know. And I certainly hadn't anticipated him lifting his head out of his hands. And, and as he looked up at me, um, he said, he said the words, he said, we killed her. And, and when he said we, he, he meant it was the South African security establishment. He certainly hadn't indicated that he was the person, but he was aware that she had been on a list of people and that she had come close to understanding some of the aspects of um, the relationships that were taking place at the time, um, that what she knew could endanger the interests certainly of South Africa. And he said that there had been a decision effectively um, that she should be murdered. He believed it was a, a an assassination that involved a number of players and at, at least the South African security uh, police would have been linked to this to get the gun out of South Africa, so a disassembled weapon that could be reassembled and then uh, used by somebody and I don't still know who that trigger man could be. You have been listening to episode 5 of They Killed Dalsi. The next episode is Women in Exile. There was a lot of sexism and gender discrimination. Um, and it's, this is something that Dalsi September very clearly fought against, both outside and, 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 and within the ANC. They Killed Dalsi is made by Open Secrets and Sound Africa. For a full list of who supports our work, go to soundafrica.org and opensecrets.org.za.